welcome to the Bulak podcast, recorded in Rabat, Morocco, and discussing books from and about and connected in some way or another to the entire Arab world. Uh, with you, as usual, myself, Ursula Lindsay, and uh, Marsha Links-Qualey of the Arab Lit blog. And this is our fourth episode. Yes. And we're already taking a look back. <laughs> yeah, at 2017. So it's the season for book lists, which is a format that, you know, has its pros and its cons. It's hard to sort of like get one's whole reading experience squeezed into it sometimes. Yes, I always am too heavy on books that I read in the fall. Somehow can't remember if a book is the book I read in the spring or did I read it last year? I don't know. Yeah, I think my, um, also, I tend to just remember the things I read in the last three, four months. I have to make a real effort to sort of go back and, and think of, of, previous, of previous reading. Um, but uh, I really like what you did. I like the approach that you took on the blog. Yes, I have been struggling for, for years to, to get this right, and I think I haven't quite gotten it right yet, but I'm mo getting better each year, I think. Um, this year, Mahmoud Hosni and I together approached uh, probably 30 different authors from across the region, my list being ex very overly uh, Egypt-centric and his being much more diverse, even though he's Egyptian, and asking them to list their favorite books of the year uh, in a format much like The Guardian's, and uh, with preferably some some extra information about those books and why they enjoyed them. And then there are certain authors who love this sort of thing. Mansoura Azeddin is always great at it. She's also a critic and she reads extremely widely. And uh, Yasser Abdelatif, his was my favorite this year uh, of people who turned in their, their commentary. Because of the way he described the book? Because I or? think he gave a great overview. He, he, he encapsulated a lot of what was going on in the list that I might not have even known, noticed without him pointing it out. He said, this is the year of nonfiction. And then as I looked at everybody else's commentary, I thought, oh yeah, it's the year of nonfiction. And he said, and um, so much incredible poetry by women and women's writing is emerging. And I looked at the list and I thought, oh yeah. So um, Yasser did me the favor of explaining what I was seeing, even without seeing it himself, just from his own year of reading. Um, so uh, in terms of books that, the, and each year I think there are books that repeat. And in, in most years it is somewhat predictive of what will then appear on the International Prize for Arabic Fiction long lists, which will come out next month. This year, because it was so focused on nonfiction and poetry, I don't think it's uh, predictive at all. Uh, but, but, it, but it's interesting, I think, for that, that the novel, it, it, and, and there are short story collections on it as well, I think the novel is much the, the least, the lesser sister, the, uh, the smallest presence on the list, which I think is fascinating because the novel, of course, gets so much attention in general. Yeah, huh. Well, and just a qu really quick question. So you ask all these authors around the region to share their favorite readings, and do you, do you ask that it be things they read in Arabic, or does it not matter? I tell them that I just am interested in what they're reading. Okay. So some authors uh, 
some authors are reading quite widely. Some some of the books that they include are books that were translated into Arabic this mm -hmm. this this past year. Um, some of their readings are in in other languages. Some authors turned in lists that were entirely in foreign languages, which is fine. I guess I'm mostly interested in what Arabic books they've been reading, but I think it's also interesting to know what really good authors have been intrigued by um, and what kinds of influences are coming into uh, coming into Arabic writers. So for instance, Mezen Maruf, pretty sure all of his things were written in other languages, but he's a great poet and short story writer, so I'm, I'm keenly interested in what is influencing him. Yeah, and so the titles that uh, came up again and again that that people seem to have like really loved are um, Hazim Wardani's Book of Sleep uh, was the most popular title of the year, and I think it was the thing this year that I was most recommended. That people most often sent me an email saying, and actually uh, when I visited Cairo last March, Mahmoud Hosni gave me some fresh off the press copy of uh, Book of Sleep. So I think. And what is it about? It is sort of a philosophical re reflections on the nature of sleep, among other things. What is sleep? Uh, hmm. So it uh, it's very much nonfiction, um, lyrical, uh, philosophical uh, reflections, um, and I believe I believe Robin Nozier is working on a, a translation. Okay. Currently. Um, but it was the book that people were most excited about. There is a translation of a Haizem Wardeni book now that people can find. It's, but it's been published as a PDF by Mafradat, and we can put a link to their website. And the, uh, the, other, the next book on the list that was the next most mentioned is Imen Marcel's How to Heal, Motherhood and Its Ghosts. It was also, the translation was sponsored by Mafradat, and there's some concern at this point that it may be published also as a PDF on their website and not come out as a book. Yeah, that it would be published only as a PDF. Yes, Yeah. which would be concerning. Yeah, it'd be too bad. I like physical copies to be available. <laughs> right. And, and this is also a personal essay. This is a, yes, it's, um, it's in their series of how-to, uh, Mafradet's series of how-tos. And this is How to Heal Motherhood and Its Ghosts. So it's her reflections on motherhood. And it's um, sort of very, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I wouldn't call it philosophical. I would say it's more concrete. And yet she's, she's a poet. So what she brings to it is her, her way of bringing in new imagery and a new, fresh ways of looking at motherhood and Arab motherhood, Egyptian motherhood, Egyptian motherhood in Canada, motherhood in exile. Hmm. Uh, into this book, which has um, been translated by Robin and uh, will be out shortly in some fashion, we hope, as a book. Um, so that was another thing that people were, people are always excited when Imen publishes something. And I think, I hope that it will be a, an event in English as well. Um, we'll see. Robin Creswell is translating her 2013 poetry collection, and I hope that will be out next year. She's a big deal. In yeah, I need to... So, I mean, these books are now on my to-read list for 2018, mm. and she has been for a while. 
I've known that I like need to check her out. Yes, you definitely yeah. do. Uh, and then the book that I saw, the uh, another nonfiction that I saw repeated that I know I need to get this now um, is by Charles Ackel, um called Coptic Food. And this is his debut book. And it's reflections, I guess, on um, Coptic cuisine and eating traditions and Coptic culture. So, so yeah, so on Egyptian, Coptic, Christian. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's an interesting jumping off point for, I mean, I don't know exactly what it's about, but I'm assuming it's not really just about uh, food like recipes per se. I assume, no, I don't think it's recipes. I think it's, you know, I, I think it's in the food memoir tradition. I haven't yeah. seen any part of it, but um, but from people's descriptions, it seems pretty engaging and I'm I'm looking forward to picking it up. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good too. Yeah, it really is a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, so nonfiction and then poetry were the things that repeated over and over again in terms of fiction, people mentioned Halella, Schumann's uh, Ken and Once Upon a Time Tomorrow is the, uh, you know, it was tomorrow mm-hmm. is, uh, is the translation. And then Jabir Duehi's printed in Beirut uh, was mentioned. Um, <clears throat> and then two novels that are already in translation. Um, Hamad Abdel Nabi mentioned All the Battles by Ma'an Abu Talib, which was a book I enjoyed this year, which was translated by Robin Mosher. And then Haydim uh, Wardeni, although protesting that he doesn't like the list format, mm-hmm. um, even though, of course, it's his book that appeared the most in the list, uh, he mentioned The Shell by Mustafa Khalifa, which um, I would... I would not ever call one of my favorite books. I find it to be, I found it to be t- so devastating, and um, it's a book about being imprisoned in Syria and uh, everything that is lost in this process. And uh, but it's fiction. It's, it's fiction. It's fiction, although it comes very close to the author's life. Okay, and it's about being imprisoned in recent years. Being an, being someone who was in prison for participating in protests or allegedly doing so, and he no, uh, he finally finds out what he was. He first he when he's first arrested, he's told he's being uh, arrested for being part of the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, and, and he tells them, "But I'm an atheist." He's coming back from spending a long time in Paris. I think he was well. The real Mustafa Khalifa was doing film. I'm, I'm not sure what the character was doing in Paris, but um, he, he comes just back to visit and he's picked up for, uh, I believe he had eventually find out he'd made some kind of party comment at a gathering in Paris and somebody had reported it in some way. So he, for a long time, we have no idea why he's been arrested. And But so it falls into the prison memoir torture test it does it does for yeah. me what elevated it was this friendship that he makes with another man in prison which is almost a platonic love story and their friendship to me is so elevating and so beautiful and then of course it doesn't end happily but uh, that I just found this to be probably the most emotionally crushing of the prison novel genre that I've ever read. In the um, 
in the spider's room, which we talked about in a previous episode, where there's also a significant portion of the story that takes place in prison, there's similarly like a key uh, friendship that is what makes the prison experience bearable. Um, yeah, and I think in in the shell there is um, some question about the nature of this relationship. There is some physical aspect to it, it in just not in a sexual physical way, more like human touch is an important aspect of our lives. But I think the narrator at some point wonders about what, what the nature of this relationship is. But it is an absolutely beautiful portrait of the possibilities of human friendship under these um, amazingly horrible situa uh, conditions. Lena Munzer described the book to me as, if anybody wants to know why Syrians rose up, you, you should read this book. Mm. And it's already been translated into English? It has. Okay. By Paul Starkey, published by Interlink, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. It appeared in English earlier this year, but I think Haizem Alwardeni just got around to reading it. So I don't require that it be that they people talk only about books that were published in 2017, just what, what they were reading this year. Yeah, no, I think that's also that's sort of truer to people's reading experience. Like, we don't all just read things that, that just came out. And I, I like you say, I think it's interesting to see um, what people are reading and what maybe might be influencing them or what they're sort of thinking about, regardless of it being new or not. Right. Yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking about, I, I would like to read this book as much as I, I find the prospect slightly daunting. Um, I feel like I have in the back of my head this sort of idea that there's a whole lot of writing right now about the body in a slightly new way, like that I feel like in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, there's been this sort of retrenching and shrinking back down to just the limits of one's body mm. uh, as the sort of fundamental unit of protest and also of, like, freedom, the mm. threatened freedom. And it's not so much right. I mean, sometimes it's writing about the body sort of, like, sexually, but it's also just, like, writing about, like, physical autonomy or dignity and then how threatened the body is. Anyway... I think uh, obviously torture is a really big part of this, but then there's a lot of other right. angles to it right. too. But I think one of the things that was striking to me, and possibly I'm stealing this from what Yasser said, I can't remember, about nonfiction being a big deal this year was that how dangerous that is. Um, that fiction in some way, although it didn't obviously for Ahmed Neji, for instance, cloaks what you're saying in a, well, I'm this is just fiction, I'm just making this up. But um, Charles Ackle, for instance, writing and not choosing to write his debut book as non-fiction, this is what's happening, these are our real lives, was um, brave, somewhat startling, uh, rather than this, uh, I think there, you know, there's a period, a, a type of writing that is um, animal metaphors, like Zekere Temer's short stories, um, 
approaching things through through a lens of, of fiction, uh, so you have to dig through and understand what's going on rather than saying this is what's happening. I also wonder, and I don't want to sort of generalize too much or sort of look too hard for trends, you know, mm -hmm. but if the interest in nonfiction is because there's such a sort of crisis of meaning and truth and, uh, you know, because what actually happened in most Arab countries mm -hmm. in the last six years is actually itself the object of huge debate and people's like lived reality is being told back to them in an entirely distorted fictitious way like mm. oh you thought you had a revolution but no you actually didn't and right. you thought these atrocities took place but you didn't and you thought we were responsible but actually we're not and you know there's right. there's such a like hard time just having a verifiable daily account of what's actually going on that I wonder if that plays in also into people just wanting to write about something real and that they know and that they're going to like explore and describe and share with others. Um, whether, and perhaps in fiction too, it can just have the effect of like wanting to write sort of stories that are quote unquote more real or less like symbolic or allegorical, mm. but more like focused on like a specific lived reality. Right. Yeah. Although I think there is also this move, a, a move, a slight movement towards fantasy and science fiction and, and other genres of yes, writing. Yes, that's true. So yeah, so that's, that's why the like, I mean, there's always like seven and a half trends happening at once and some of them are like <laughs> right. opposites of others. Right. Yeah, of course. You know, there is, there's a sort of whole dystopian genre and sci-fi and speculative fiction genre going on and one of the books I want to talk about fits in into that. Um, Yes, and I, I was going to say that I'm expecting that book that we can talk about right now to come up on next year's lists because it was just translated into Arabic and very recently appeared. And so I think that its appearance in Arabic will possibly um, bring a new influence to Arabic literature as well. We'll see. So this is American War by mm -hmm. Omar El-Akkad uh, that was published in English. Um, and the author is uh, Egyptian-Canadian, grew up partly in Qatar and then has lived in Canada for a while, is a journalist who covered uh, Afghanistan, Guantanamo, Black Lives Matters, and you actually see all of this make its way into his debut novel, which I thought was phenomenal. Like, really was one of the favorite, my favorite things that I've read in recently. Um, and just to sort of quickly give people the premise and then, like, not give away too much, it's the, the American War of the title is a civil war that breaks out at the end of the 21st century in the United States when the... American South refuses to abide by a federal, um, a new federal law um, forbidding the use of um, gasoline. Fossil fuels. Yeah, of all fossil fuels. And so there's this sort of doomed, proud Southern rebellion, and the narrator happens by accident ends up on the Southern side of the conflict growing up in a refugee camp. And there's all sorts of twists and turns. It's 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 a, it's a great story. What I liked about it is that it brings 
all these elements of the American war on terror into an American future. Mm-hmm. So there's like drones flying around and states under siege and refugee camps and militias and right. terrorists. And the regret of now I, I can see that I shouldn't have left home in, in hindsight, I would have preferred to stay put rather than go into the refugee camp, but you can't go back. So, so many narratives that, you, that have appeared elsewhere now in a, in a very densely written, beautifully realized um, American context. And I guess I was surprised that this was a Canadian and not somebody who had grown up in the South, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I think he must have spent some time in the South. I mm-hmm. wonder if when he covered um, the activism of black Americans, like he clearly has, I think, been spent some time in the States. There's all sorts of great, yeah, detail to it. And the writing, I think, is beautiful. Like, it just kind of pops. You mm-hmm. know, you're just waiting page after page. There's like something on every page that's... Uh, yeah, I think any fan of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sour and Parable of the Talents would absolutely love this book. It's very much in that tradition. I would imagine that he's well-versed in Octavia Butler. And um, it sort of flips things. It, it, there's all these inversions that come on gradually. And um, again, without going into too many details, but as the American as America is torn apart by the Civil War, the new powers in the world are China and then an Arab world. The Boazizi Empire. Yeah, <laughs> that has finally unified after its, like, fifth spring. The fifth, fifth Arab spring. And or, is a ascendant power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is interfering in the American conflict uh, to push its own agenda. And there's a character that says to another, uh, you know, I remember back in the day when it was your guns and our blood, and now it's things have flipped around, and it's just one of these many really well-done inversions. I think it's very powerful for an American reader because you really do identify with all the sides of the conflict, and all the sides of the conflict are going through all these things that the U.S. does out in the world these days, including, to go back to torture, there is like, I don't think you've got that far in the book. No, I haven't. There is an extended, extended and extremely well written. Oh, I mean, uh, there is a main character who is captured and kept in detention for years, mm. and that whole process is described very well. Yeah, I, I can't think of another novel that I've read that was written in English that brings all these things into America in such a well realized way. In the way that I believe that. Uh, where I lived before, um, where I lived before Rabat was briefly in the South, and I believed that I was in the South in this. In this, not I'm not. I'm not myself a Southerner, but I I believed I was there. Uh, so he brings these things in in an, in such an organic way that it seems I'm in two places at once, which is always wonderful with a novel. Yeah, yeah. The whole. Um the way he describes uh, political cultures that are sort of based on a sense of victimhood and grievance and stubbornness, but in a way that's not condescending to the South, because Mm -hmm. the story is told from the point of view that you're in the South. The protagonist Mm -hmm. fights for the South. Like, whether the... In fact, what he gets at in the end is the fact that, like, 
If you're a young person caught up in a conflict, whether your cause is just or not, or your side is right or not, may not matter to you because at a certain point, you're just going to fight or not based on sort of your experience and your personality and, and, and your temperament and just your desire to kind of like take a stand uh, and not just be a, a victim. Mm-hmm. And there's, he has this very compelling also female character, main female character, I think... Again, uh, another sort of, I think, inversion of, of what you standard expect. She's black. She's a woman. Mm-hmm. That goes sort of just completely unremarked upon. That just is a fact in, 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 in the story. And, uh, and uh, she's very uh, charismatic. Yeah. And uh, I, I, to me, this is another Octavia Butler marker mm. in the book. But I, I think... It's it's a wonderful book that can do two things at the same time. Well, and so there's another book that also features a fighter that we were gonna that yes, I read yes, because yes. you told me that she liked it, and I made you start to read American War. That which was like, I love. <laughs> so thank you for that. You're welcome. I've actually been recommending it far and wide, which I really don't do that often mm. with books. Um, and then I read on your recommendation, uh, All the Battles. Um, right, by Ma'ana Butaleb. So let's give people the, the sort of setup. Okay, the setup is that he is a man who is now past his prime, you know, 26 ancient years or 27, something like that. And he is working in a marketing project uh, in Amen, and he's doing very well for himself, but he... Uh, becomes obsessed with boxing. He finds a place on the on the other side of the tracks where he can learn to box. Finds that he's gifted at it, and yet it's probably a bit too late for him to ever learn how to properly box since he's 26 now. He has some initial success at boxing, uh, although uh, like like many things in his life, he's he's gifted at it, but he's he didn't start at the right time. He didn't start young enough. He wasn't on the right path. Things don't work out for him. And ultimately, it's a story about what do you do with defeat. So I didn't quite get to the end of the book. Um, so I wasn't sure how it turns out. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. It is... Um, although I... I actually hoped that that was how it turned out because if it had just been a sort of straight path to victory uh, where he discovers boxing as a natural trained and uh, you know throws over his job and then he just becomes a boxing star that wouldn't have really been a narrative uh, that had sort of any compelling edge to it right so I although I I'm sort of the last 50 pages I didn't get through I was expecting a fall and um I mean the things I liked about the book it's very um it's very tightly observed so there's all these scenes that like really get into the, sort of the details and the logistics and the dynamics of boxing mm-hmm. Um, so you can tell that the author either did a ton of research or boxes himself. I mean, there's a real texture. Right. To me, there was something a little, you know, macho romantic about this whole boxing metaphor as like, you know, the sort of underlying point of the book is that 
men need to fight for something. Right. And, you know, the female characters are sort of relegated to being the supportive girlfriend and then the impatient girlfriend and the tempting co-worker. I, right. The, the female characters are not very interesting in the book, definitely. Yeah. and Although there is one moment where she, it comes into her point of view um, when she's being harassed at the... Uh, at the ringside that is interesting. But generally, the women characters are not very interesting. Yeah, I mean, which it's not so much that I feel like every book has to have... Uh, I mean, there can be stories where most of the characters are male and the point of view is male. I mean, that's mm. a whole sort of other question as to whether... I, I don't necessarily feel like women's point of view have to always be represented in a work for the work to be valid or like be good um but i did feel like there's a sort of you know little hemingway-esque this sort of like mm. very romantic vision of like guys just need to you know i think that's the tradition that he's writing in definitely um faulkner-esque uh hemingway uh cormac mccarthy uh there you know there are a number of Boxing novels. I th boxing novels are a big genre, uh, and I, I find them compelling. I think boxing is an, a great sport to to write about, to write about class issues, to write about um, defeat, and it is a very sort of one on one sport. You you don't. It's not the team that wins or loses. It's you. It's all about if you lose, that's it. You're a loser. Um, and in about the nature of winning, uh, what what winning means he you know he's the he's a guy who he can't he can't enjoy playing uh, football he has to win and there's uh, something about the nature of what it means to win and lose in there um, and then you know uh, the metaphor of what you do after defeat which I think you know in a context of writing about a Palestinian Jordanian context is very what do you what do you do after you've lost right there's this recurring theme of sort of family photos in which he's looking at relatives from an earlier generation who were off training at military camps in the mountains mm -hmm. or part of some sort of resistant movement in their youth right and clearly that's this whole idea of uh, fighting is 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 linked to that I didn't connect particularly with mm. the main character, or he didn't have of enough of a sort of voice or point of view. It's kind of affectless, which is also very much in the tradition of a certain kind of writing, right. of like male writing, action writing, war, yes, yes, yes. you know. So the main character's decisions, which are very dramatic, are kind of come one after the other without a lot of access to like why mm -hmm. they're sort of observed from the outside mm -hmm. um which overall as a stylistic choice i think works but it didn't make me super invested in the character and he's always really like he's like really good at his job he has a hot girlfriend he's handsome he's like a natural at boxing i sort of felt like you know okay i guess he's in for he has to be in for a fall <laughs> you know and then the, he lives happily ever after yeah and yeah no, he doesn't. 
it's very well translated, but I mean, everything that it's translated by um, Robin Mojer, and I think pretty much everything he does translate is well translated. Yes. We're both big fans of Robin. Yeah. And for, well, we should say, just, you know, uh, admit our conflict, and, f- and former housemates, myself, I lived with Robin in Cairo 10 I've years ago. I've never met Robin, so I don't, I don't feel a strong conflict of interest. Oh, there we go. Well, at some point, we'll have, uh, we'll fly him out to Rabat and have a, have a great, once, once our yes. podcast becomes, you know, incredibly solvent <laughs> Right, successful. we'll buy Robin a plane ticket. Yeah, yeah, and we start to be able to invite translators and mm-hmm. authors to just come uh, chat with us. Absolutely. So what else, what else do we have on our list? Um, well, I wanted to say that this was the year I discovered Zena Hashem Beck. Uh, finally, uh, her collection Louder Than Hearts came out in March or April, and I met her at, I think, Emirates Lit Fest in the spring. And it, I, I'm not sure exactly when I started reading her poetry, but I'm certain it was this year. And I was just... Uh, blown to pieces about how she she takes both Arabic and English and weaves them together and she has some poems that echo other poems. There's one that echoes a Badr Shekhar Sayyib poem, Rain Song, that's one of my favorite poems and she has a poem that you can hear Rain Song underneath it. Now I you know I say this not knowing what does the poem sound like if you've never if you don't know Rain Song the if you don't if you don't hear that tonality underneath it, but um, and she has some that weave in um, Um Kalsum and Fairuz and um, some that weave in uh, uh, call-in shows where if you're watching TV, there's like call-ins scrolling along the bottom and what people are saying, and I I really love how her her poetry echoes these these different cultural resonances. And so she has some acts of translation, I think, where she talks about the call to prayer, but she's describing, instead of explaining what these terms mean, she's describing it in a completely fresh way in this English language with some Arabic poem. And so how her poetry knits together and intertranslates these two realities is uh, stunning to me and and just the 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 texture and the specificity and the 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 how she's really on top of her craft so sorry she writes in english she writes in english but she uses arabic and arabic poetry and arabic song in there actual terms are some arabic some arabic terms yes and also as a kind of reference yes, underneath? Yes, also as a reference underneath. Um, so, you know, um, I guess her ideal audience, if there is such a thing, it has access to both traditions, but but she suddenly in the last uh, uh, year has started winning all these awards, so I think, in, in English, so I think other people must be accessing things in her poetry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also a wonderful spokenness about it. There, there's one of her works that was staged in uh, in Beirut, um, which is she's Lebanese, although she's living in du- Dubai, I think now. And and it's these it's women's voices. So I think her 
her way of rendering different women's voices is also amazing. Different Lebanese women's voices, mostly her relatives. Hmm. Well, so, that, those are always voices that one knows well. Yes, exactly. Um, so she was an exciting discovery this this uh, year, although you know she has existed in the real world for many years. It was my year to realize that there she is. Um, I think Azadine uh, um, Shukri Fisher's embrace at, at Brooklyn Bridge was a really underappreciated, exciting novel that I'm uh, sad that didn't receive more more press and coverage, uh, translated by John Peet. Um, it has, um, it's different, different uh, Arabs going to a birthday party in New York City, mostly Egyptian, all around one family and one crabby old man. Um, but uh, there's, there is this uh, embedded clash of civilizations element to it. They all kind of hate each other and they have different uh, well, they don't all hate each other, but they all have very different positions staked out on what's going on in the world. And there is one character who is a sort of a pro-9-11 character who even goes into the um, museum and he's kind of reveling in this thing that happened. And uh, Azadine Shukri Fashir manages to write this character and inhabit this character without, of course, being this character. He's He teaches at Dartmouth and... He does not subscribe to any of these views. Please do not harass Azadine Shukri Fischer. Um, but this character is very deeply realized, and I was surprised that nobody was, that more, more people were not interested in, in this book. Yeah, I haven't read it. I read of his, um, in Arabic actually, several years ago, the book No Exit. Uh, uh, yes. Um, and I think I know. Hupo Fiction has signed a translation of that, and that will be coming out, I believe, next year. So he has two more books that have received, yes, a lot of interest and critical acclaim, and he's definitely a writer that we will eventually have read in English, but not. But this particular book didn't get as much attention as I would have liked. Yeah, I wonder why. Maybe it's sort of oversaturation without having read it. People think, oh, about, you know, 9-11 or East-West or Clash of Civilizations and the theme feels yes, like something yes, that yes. they've it didn't explored have a fresh before. political hook. It's not the new novel from Yemen that will explain what's going on there, you know. It, yeah. I mean, it's a big market. Lots of books are published every year. It's hard to know which ones actually are going to cross over into people's attention. Yeah, but no, I agree that he's a he's a I think an interesting and an accomplished writer, and he has uh, the book I mentioned, which is sort of again an imagined Egyptian future, but it was written it was written before the. Morsi government fell in the coup. It was written before 2013. It was written in 2012, I think. But it very much previews in a slightly different way a lot of those events. Mm -hmm. So um, it very much captures kind of the atmosphere um, 
and is uh, is quite convincing sort of alternate reality. Yes. It's not that far from reality. Uh, and then he's also written something, I think, since Embrace on Brooklyn Bridge about, which is another novel about the Egyptian Revolution. All that rubbish or however you want to yeah. translate it. All that nonsense, maybe somebody translated it. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, yes, and that came out within the last year. I haven't seen that, but a lot of people talked very warmly about it, so yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. We have just stacks and stacks of books to look forward to, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? I have one more book I want to talk about. Yeah, go for ahead. Sure. Um, this is, so, so the, I did do one end of the year book list, which was for Alfanar, this site that I work with that covers, uh, education in the region. And so that list is, a, is, a, is a mix of, uh, it also includes sort of more scholarly works because we're trying to give an idea of, of interesting work by academics, uh, both from and about the region. And, um, I read this book called Bad Girls of the Arab World uh, that's out from University of Texas Press and uh, that's edited by Nadia Yacoub and the late Rola Kouawas, who is a professor uh, in Jordan. And it's a really interesting collection of essays about, they sort of, they say their theme is uh, women who transgress or have transgression thrust upon them because they make the valid point that often uh, these women that in some way break social norms don't necessarily do so on purpose. Mm. So they discuss um, a, a lot of it is it are recent cases that ha um, happened since the Arab Spring, but not all of them. And so they discuss things like uh, activists who have disseminated naked pictures of themselves to make political statements, right. which is, of course, a pretty transgressive act. Um, but they also discuss something like the famous Sitt uh, al-Banet in Egypt of the girl in the blue bra mm -hmm. who was publicly beaten and partly stripped by soldiers in, in Cairo during a, a breakup of a protest. Of course, she didn't choose to expose herself in any way. She was exposed and then was the subject of an enormous conversation mm -hmm. about the proper role of women in public space and... Should you wear a blue bra? Yes, <laughs> yeah. And so she was sort of a victim, heroine, but then also by some people, uh, you know, condemned for inappropriate behavior and attire mm -hmm. and which is a big part, like this is a backlash that happens in almost every single case discussed in the book is that when women do... Um, get attention uh, for in some way uh, behaving in a way that sort of challenges the status quo. And even that varies from time to place. So the same behavior is like acceptable sometimes and unacceptable others. There's very often a backlash then against their exposure either of themselves or of something about the society that is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the Kuawas, the Jordanian professor, her students famously made this video about sexual harassment on campus uh, in, in, in 2012, I think it was leaked online, and it, she, she was like demoted from being dean. Her students were berated by like hundreds of thousands of people online for talking about sexual harassment. Right. 
as opposed to the issue being the sexual harassment itself. And I mean, that dynamic, but it's a very nuanced book. It sort of talks about the way that like dealing with colonial legacy still is a huge issue for women uh, in the region because uh, they have to find uh, an, uh, an identity or a position where they're not then accused of being like un-Islamic or unpatriotic for right. their behavior. Uh, and there's like some very nice personal essays by writers and by academics who just sort of talk about their experience trying to navigate particular situations where they were themselves exposed for supposedly mm-hmm. um, engaging in like inappropriate discourse or behavior. And I, I, I thought it was very interesting. Great. Well, I have a copy on my coffee table and I, I have not yet opened it, but I really look forward to it. Yeah, I think it's a good introduction to both like feminist activism in the region because you get a lot of examples of, of um, things that women have done and to feminist scholarship because you get them framed and so you get sort of a sense of the debate and the terms and the issues that, are, that come up frequently. Mm. Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading it. And then we wanted to talk about something that we read that we hadn't enjoyed. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we read it online, and it's a bit infamous at this point. It appeared, it's an excerpt of a work that I think was published last month in November, possibly in October. Uh, it's called, I believe, um, Bar Mitzvah in Abu Dhabi. Well, the book is called that, and then the essay was called... But the essay, the... which is how many of us, including myself and Ursula, came to know about it, was called... The Fine Art of Learning to Say Nothing in Arabic, which I came to thank you, Marcia, so much thanks to you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I I think I tweeted about it a lot. Well, I think it deserved the opprobrium that it got. Uh, There's a a significant amount of lame commentary and reportage about the region, and Generally speaking, I think one just tends to avoid it. Yeah. Right? And then every once in a while, something is brought to your attention, and for whatever reason, you actually engage with it. And I thought this was pretty egregious. I think I engaged with it because LitHub is a publication that I've come to. I've written for LitHub, and it's a publication that I think has really championed um, views of traditionally marginalized writers. And so, and, and plus, you know, the fine art of learning, uh, let's uh, omit to say nothing at this point, but, you know, it had some of my buzzwords in it, mm. art, Arabic. So I clicked on it. And I think, you know, the first impression that you get from it is that it must be some sort of satire, self-satire. Um, and then as you keep reading, you realize, no. Um, yeah, I thought it was a parody when you sent it to me. And I think uh, for, the, for the three people who haven't already seen this, because we, we, it was discussed online a fair amount. So it's an excerpt from this book that seems to be a sort of personal memoir about traveling to the Arab world and learning Arabic, pres- presumably. Yes. In the W.W. Like w. Norton description, it says, he goes to the places that scare him the most. 
and right. that he connects with other bros or something to that effect. Right. Okay. And so, and so the chapter that's excerpted, uh, the author who is uh, American and Jewish and has been studying Arabic is on his way to Dubai, uh, and I mean just to. So, for example, on the airplane, he's offered a glass of mystery orange juice and uh, mistakes it for orange juice and says, you know, uh, and the flight attendant tells him, no, it's carrot juice. And he says, clearly, I didn't belong. Obviously, one of the oranges was orange, or had even that been too hasty an assumption? I took the glass of the mystery orange, and a tentative nip, it was fitting in a way. The root of the Arabic for carrot, jazar, is shared by the word for island and peninsula, as in the Arabian Peninsula or the island of Abu Dhabi. Of course, it was total coincidence in that place where linguistic bloodlines run tangled back into ancient history. But as we headed toward Jazira al-Arab, I couldn't help but imagine our destination was like a great carrot on the map. <laughs> like, I don't even know where to start. This is really... But I think, I think if this were it, and it were not a major release, I think it's, you know, if, if this is the email you're sending to your friends and family about learning Arabic, I mean, God bless it. Yeah, sure. Look, we've all, I think in a way, we've all been there. Like, terribly naive, thinking we're having amazing insights about some, like, new learning experience. I, 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 I'm sure I do not even ever want to reread the stuff I wrote in my first year as a journalist in Cairo. Like, uh, none. Me either. I, I think I did send out some of those friends and family emails that probably sound very tortured. So that and also, like, there's a tendency to sort of pile on online, and it's we don't have any, like, personal animosity at all towards this writer and uh i sort of feel sorry for people getting censored collectively when that happens i'm sure it's not it's not pleasant but that said like it's just really you know dispiriting that this is the level of discourse mm. um that this much clichedness is still the sort of standard approach and, and the, you, the line that that where i just couldn't anymore, was, uh, so he talks about beginning to learn Arabic seven miles from the deadliest attack ever on American soil, the study of this language, the official tongue of the religion claimed by this, these attackers, uh, okay, carried a special emotional charge. And then he goes on to say that no one denied the impression that this was a language that represented a certain opposition which opposition we don't really know, that it was on the other side of something. The other side of what? I, apparently the other side of right and good and white-hattedness, I guess. But the sentence itself makes no sense. Well, the sentence itself is, is, is weaselly. Weasley, because right. no one denied the impression that this was a language. Like, if you want to say this language represents opposition to what? Specify it. And then, like, say that this is what you think. Not that, like... I mean, did, I, did you give other people a chance to deny it? Like, did you ask them? I mean, and and also this is just such, you know, vague clash of civilization mumbo jumbo. Everybody... It gives the impression that there's something else beneath it. We all know that these Arabs are bad and that their Arabic language represents something evil. 
So we don't really have to say And I've just mentioned 9-11 in the previous sentence, so right. you know what I'm actually talking about. You know, what language in the world doesn't represent a different point of view? Like, of course, when you learn another language, you're stepping into some sort of uncharted territory. Of course, you're going to experience a slightly different view of the world. That's what language does. Mm. But that supposedly the Arab language is the essential opposite view of the world to our own, mm. that's what that sentence kind of contains. Right. It's really that there are there are alter egos. And if it's them versus us, we know which one an American author and an American audience is going to think is the good one and vice versa. Right. And then he mentions veils and he mentions baklava in like 2,000 words. The editors really should have... Right, and I think um, another thing that, that you and I had talked about was that it's, it's not that one can't write about Arabic if one is not Arab. Or at least that's, you know, that's certainly not something that I, I think. There have been people that have wrote, written about the act of learning Arabic in a very beautiful, dense, non, non-Orientalist way that is not, not meant to set up these these imaginary oppositions, not meant to be part of this part of this act of war. I think one of the interesting, troubling, accidental things that happened with this piece is that it came out at the same moment that Donald Trump had made his Jerusalem announcement. N- not exactly at that moment, but around this moment. And then you have this guy sort of casually calling his cousin, who is in officer training camp in the Negev, and without discussing at all what this means or what the context is, and, and suggesting the fine art of learning to say nothing in Arabic, that Arabic is somehow a meaningless language. Which is just such a cliche about Arabic on the part of people who, I, I think often on the part of people who don't know Arabic very well. I've heard it so often from people who are not fluent Arabic speakers, mm. that supposedly it's so flowery and so on. Right. Yes, it's an, it's, a, it's an ancient language with many formulas, but all the observations about the language here seem very superficial to me. And maybe that's the effect of writing for like a very general public that you assume that they're they're, you know, you're going to start with the basics and explain that Arabic has these roots and isn't mm. it crazy how these words that mean different things are related? Although Amitav Ghosh had a large release book in which he discusses his learning of Arabic in an antique land. Which we love. And it, it was very uh, densely realized and, and real and grappling with, uh, with the language. And which he also discusses, uh, like clash of cultures like he has some very very funny scenes he's an he's an he's an indian student in egypt doing research on the these famous uh Ganesa documents mm. and staying at one point in like a small egyptian yes, village yes, i can't remember yes. why and he is describes very funnily all the sort of you know uh stereotypes and miscommunications and, and just, like, funny expectations that Egyptians have about him, about him being Indian, about his religion, uh, also about, like, his ability to, like, fix water pumps because the <laughs> water pumps in the village are made in India. There's mm. some something like that where... But yet, because he has such a real 
deep, I mean, because he's a real scholar, and so he also includes all this, like, amazing historical research, and because he's a real sensitive writer who goes beyond cliches. And I think he also knows a number of old languages. Um, I, I'm guessing from reading his other novels that he knows Hindi and um, probably several other era, uh, Indian languages. And also I think because he, he, he comes there from the, as an Indian, like he's not an American. I think that makes a difference. Mm. Like his geopolitical viewpoint and identity positioning is is different. Right. Yeah, no, I there another book about learning Arabic that I really love is um Kraczowski is among Arabic manuscripts and he's a Russian writer and it's been translated into English, his memoir. Although since I'm technically a Russianist, I technically should have read it in the Russian. Uh but it's um very disappointed in Russia. <laughs> uh but it's it's a wonderful grappling with uh with how he learned about Arabic, traveled around in Arab countries, and discovered these different manuscripts and fell in love with Arabic manuscripts and Arabic manuscript culture. And it doesn't have to always be flattering. I mean, the, the issue is not that one can't say anything bad about um, Arabs. The issue for me is waiting until you actually have something to say. Like, I think there is a... It is such an American phenomenon to, like, go abroad. And because going abroad or studying another language is a very deep and exciting and meaningful experience, mm -hmm. but the moment you have it, you think that you have some incredible observations to offer, as if this hasn't already happened, to, you know, to... to to hundreds of thousands of people, first of all, have gone abroad, have studied this language, like you're not the first. Uh -huh. And also as if you immediately, as soon as you learn something about this culture and this language, have so much to, to offer in your observations about it when you're literally just touching the tip of the iceberg and have so much more to learn. It is a surprising phenomenon. In, in, you would be surprised that the publisher, not... I, I'm, I'm sure when I am, was first learning any language, I was so excited. Me too. And felt that I was the first person walking on the moon. But that, you know, a major publisher would would also not say, come on, somebody else has learned this language in the past, and maybe we should fact check some of this, uh, some of these bits. Uh, somebody, you know, suggested, don't, don't they have sensitivity readers these days? And even without even getting into the politics of it, like, it's just not very well written. It's not clear what it adds that's new to the to the genre of, of these sorts of books. And and like you said, there's probably tons of people who would like to write something about their experience learning Arabic. And it's hard to come up with something that's genuinely original and good, but we could certainly come up with something that's <laughs> leagues better than this. Well, come on. you and I both uh, remembered and enjoyed Matthew McNaught's essay in N Plus One, which yeah. was called Yarmouk Miniatures. And it was about him being in Syria and learning Arabic and coming to grips with different cultural and literary uh, phenomena in, in Syria. And then written from, so I think starting in 2007, was when he st started learning Arabic, I'm not sure. Yeah, I but think then it's written from a, a time after the Arab Spring or... 
Yeah, and Syrian he was he was in Damascus and going to the Yarmouk uh, refugee camp mm-hmm. where his teacher was, which was then eventually uh, besieged. Right. And, and so I think he then, uh, when he wrote the piece, he includes both his memories of these uh, great Arabic lessons he had, which, like many of us, he also had an Arabic teacher that became like a great friend and mm-hmm. someone that just opens... He, had, he sounds like he had a great Arabic teacher who also in, then introduced him to the work of this Syrian playwright right. who I haven't read, but I have bought his books on the basis of this essay because right. it makes such a convincing case for this being someone that you have to read. Like the descriptions of his work are... So it's, just, it's about the language. It's about all the doors that the language can open to you, mm. personal, literary... And it's sort of also a very sad story because he up he lets you know what's happened to his teacher, what's happened to the camp. Uh, yeah, it's but it's it's I, I would read a whole book written by by this guy about his experience learning Arabic. Right. So what we're telling you, W. W. Norton, is <laughs> Matthew McNaught at whatever. Sign him. <laughs> yeah. Send us an email and we'll put you in contact. Yeah, he's uh, and I think he's actually written a follow up essay for N Plus One. It was it's a, it's a it's a it's a lovely piece of writing, and in fact, it's I think great to be able to convey what is interesting about learning a language, what's valuable about learning a language. But what's valuable about it, I don't think, is like you overcoming your own fears or you know you setting off to have a an adventure, what's actually valuable about it is going to surprise you. You're not going to know ahead of time. Right. And and also, yeah, it's not going to be learning to connect with the other. Right. <laughs> Sorry. As if that was such an insurmountable challenge to begin with. And, right. Probably and, you could have found somebody in New York City in the first place. You didn't even need to learn Arabic for that. Yeah. How did you... You studied in Cairo, right? I did. I... So I'm supposed to be a Russianist, and then um, I worked as a journalist, um, probably because I, I was offered a job in journalism before anything in Russian came up. And then I visited a friend in, in Cairo, uh, fell in love with Cairo, quit everything and moved to Egypt, and that's when I st- I, I think I started studying from that moment that I realized, wait, if I'm moving to Egypt, I better start learning Arabic. So before you even arrived in Egypt, you started studying... Yeah. I did. I, I, I taught myself the alphabet the summer before I moved there, yes. And then did so you have... So I could have... read Heinz on the ketchup bottle. Ah, and then did you have a lot of different teachers, or did you just I have... Di- I did. I st- really had to find the teacher that clicked with you. I also started out in different classroom settings, which were generally terrible. I went to this um, CSA, Community Services Association, in Maidi first, and there was a guy who I think owned a bus company by day, and then by night he taught um, to mostly Americans, mostly aid and oil workers who didn't even want to, you know. Okay, try and say, Sabah al-Khir. I got no idea what you're talking about, you know. There was a, one guy who, that was his response to everything. So I, I think until I, I found a one-on-one teacher, it was pretty disastrous. And then you did find your teacher eventually, I someone did. that was... I did. Karima, yes. 
And and did you start out with you started out sensibly with a tutor instead of going through all these dreadful? No, I went to a weird school. So I did not. I was not sure I wanted to study Arabic. I mean, I had studied French, and then I came to Cairo by chance, and I did not think I was going to stay. I think 12 years, let alone, I mean, I really didn't think right. I was going to say that very long. And I thought, I'm not going to learn Arabic. It's going to take forever. And, you know, and then after probably just a year or two, maybe I think within a year, I was like, okay, I guess I better learn a little bit. It seems mm-hmm. like I'm not going anywhere. And I went to um, a language school in the suburb of Cairo that I lived in, uh, that turned out to have like quite a like Islamic tinge to it, but I didn't quite realize at the time it was called Al Fajr, the Dawn. Oh. And um, my I had one-on-one classes with a uh, Munakaba teacher who would take off her face veil after she locked the door, and we were both inside. And it was a really intense relationship. Like, I found out a lot about her life, as one does mm. with teachers. Oh, with yes, teachers. absolutely. We were close in age, too. We were both in our early 20s, and she got engaged while I, while we were having these classes. It was really... I learned a lot from the stories about her, her family and so on. And uh, she taught me the alphabet and some basic stuff. And then I eventually found there was a tutor that a lot of my friends were going to, mm. Adil Abdelmonem, who's also a teacher at um, I think the Dutch Netherlands Institute in Cairo, and he's one of the best Arabic teachers ever. And he's one of those teachers who finds out what you're interested in, mm. and brings it into your lesson. So we did things related to journalism and then we read things and everything he brought. He's like a sort of self-educated, uh, super cultured person. So yeah, I saw him for years. We used to sit, you know, right next to each other in a cloud of cigarette smoke, <laughs> you know, going over my interviews and reading the newspapers and he was lovely. Excellent. Well, there was no cigarette smoke for me. Uh, you know, but good for you. Well, part of mine was, uh, I remember my, my Arabic teacher even came to the hospital where I had just gave, given birth. Um, I'm not I'm sure it was to visit, not to continue my lessons. Right. I was worried that I was going to forget everything while I was in the hospital. It's a, I mean, it must be strange for a teacher because I feel like language teachers end up being your guides into the, often by default, you like turn to them as your guides into like the entire culture. Like you mm. ask them every question you have often, like it goes so far beyond language. It's a really intimate relationship. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I think mine became a kind of a frenemy relationship. Oh, really? Yes. I, I hope she's not listening. Oh, well, that's too bad. Oh, I think, but that's an also an interesting relationship. It's not yeah. that I don't respect her. I think that she was a great teacher, but I don't think that our views on many things aligned. Uh, well, that's always an interesting moment that you get to when mm-hmm. you like really disagree with your language teacher who has all this authority in this in the in your relationship. Absolutely. And so you're like, no, but I'm not asking you about grammar. I am, <laughs> this is a political thing, and they're like, no, it's like this, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then I did the Center for Arabic Studies Abroad in Cairo, which was mm-hmm. a fantastic, intensive Arabic program, where also the teachers were, were really, really good. 
Yes. Um, before we finished, I wanted to talk about, just briefly mention that the Nagib Mahfouz Medal for Literature was awarded in the time since our la since episode three. And that was awarded, as always, on December 11th, Nagib Mahfouz's uh, birthday, even though he was not into birthdays and only started celebrating them in the end of his life and always found them, I think, a bit weird. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I think in his childhood in Egypt, celebrating birthdays wasn't a thing. Uh -huh. And he writes about it in some memoir of his, uh, his odd relationship with birthdays. Um, and this year, uh, it went to Palestinian uh, novelist, Huzama Habayeb, who, uh, some of her short stories, an excerpt from her 2011 novel, had been translated into English, but she has not had a book in English. So this book, Velvet, which was published in 2016, will be her first work to come into English. And I think she, I, I haven't, I, I've read short stories of hers. I haven't read this. I meant to read her previous novel based on uh, Ahdaf Swift's suggestion. It was one of Ahdaf Swift's books, my favorite books of the year, I think in The Guardian in 2012. And she had mentioned how witty and dark, uh, fun and funny it was. And then somehow it escaped me. Um, and then this, she, she's written, th this is her third novel, and she's really taken her time with them, I think, sometimes in Arabic, because there's not a strong, as strong of an, um, an editing culture that sometimes novels are written and come out quite quickly. Um, Sometimes it's amazing. I mean, Rabbi Jabr seems to be able to produce a novel every... He could produce a novel every month and it would be brilliant, I guess. Um, but she really seems to have taken her time crafting these works. And she was... Although I haven't read it, she was uh, a wonderful person to chat with about her craft and her interest in writing. And I read her the speech that she gave um, at the Mahfouz Medal Awards Night. And I, I heard that people gave her a standing ovation, that, that she shed tears, that other people in the audience shed tears, that it was um, a very moving moment. And the description of the book is that it's uh, an account of life in a Palestinian refugee camp. The protagonist is a woman, and right. it's sort of, I think the judges said, uh, it's focused on the sort of details of daily life and politics and political leaders and political negotiations are all sort of far in the background and it foregrounds instead uh, in supposedly a very beautifully written and observed way the, the daily struggles of this woman. Yes, she called it a love story, Huzama did. Ah, okay. Um, so, and... She, uh, I think, is very invested in the passions of her, of her characters, and the the big passions of her characters. So, and and I, I think I gathered from her that it, it's not all happy endings and bunnies and sunsets and rainbows. But I don't think any of the books we've talked about today. I don't think a single one is a much of a happy ending. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't gotten to the end of American War. Does it end nicely? No. <laughs> okay. No. But it's so well told. It doesn't dis it doesn't destroy you. Okay. It's it's not it's not a downer, but it 
Well, the end nothing, of nothing good Khalifa's, happens. The end of Mustafa Khalifa's the shell. I have told people that if you don't have someone nearby to hug, please do not go oh. to the end of the book. So that's a pretty shattering one. Yeah, I know. I think none of them are really uppers that we've talked about today. But still, I'm looking forward to reading them very much. And, you know, thank you so much for collecting all these uh, suggestions and recommendations from, from writers. And I feel like I have like half of my reading list for next year already like on the way of things that I'm, that I'm looking forward on, on catching up on. Yes. Well, one of these years, I'm really going to do it in a way that really makes me proud. I'm going to ask people from every country, and I'm going to have a balance of people writing different genres, but it's getting there. Yeah, and also, you know, I don't think one has to be... I mean, it's nice to cast your net wide, but being comprehensive or being somehow definitive or even being scientific, you know, isn't the goal. We're just trying to... Well, I think that's part of what Arab Lit is. is uh, Part of the, the wonderful thing about blogging is, is that I, I'm not waiting until I have the perfect thing, but I'm just kind of throwing out the thing I have today. Yeah, well, I think it it's, it's, it's works well. And um, we wish all our listeners uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, whatever it is that you're celebrating. Happy Kwanzaa. Yeah, Happy Hanukkah. And uh, see you in 2018. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Bye.